Hey everybody, my name is Nick Alamonos and welcome back to the Story Matters podcast. Now, today I am excited because I am actually going to talk about a book that I really, really loved. It's Anthony Doerr's Cloud Cuckoo Land. And I have to say right from the bat that I'm giving this book my highest recommendation I consider it a masterpiece, and this is something that I very rarely find is is a book that I feel this strongly about and that I'm really excited to talk about. So I picked this up because I was in the bookstore, and I noticed that I had a very unusual title. It almost seemed like something that would be written for kids. But then I noticed at the top, it said Pulitzer Prize winning author of All the Light We Cannot See. Now, I haven't read All the Light We Cannot See, but I figure that if a Pulitzer Prize winning author wrote a book called Cloud Cuckoo Land, I definitely have to get into it. I have to check it out and see what it's all about. Now, my kids kind of joked with me because they said, you must really love books to have cloud in the title because... One of the last books that I really felt strongly about was Cloud Atlas. Really loved Cloud Atlas. That's another one of my favorite books of the past 10 years. And I have to say that there are actually a lot of similarities between Cloud Atlas and Cloud Cuckoo Land. So it might just be that books with the word cloud in the title are really good. And maybe I should just start buying books based on on that word. If, If the book contains cloud, I should read it. But no, both of these books were fantastic. And they both, oddly enough, deal with multiple characters and multiple perspectives over hundreds and hundreds of years. But all the stories have a thread that connects them together. So when I started reading this book, I had my notepad out and I was making notes and I was trying to, you know, find things to complain about. And so in the beginning, I said that I felt that the story was a little unclear. I didn't really know what it was about because it does jump around from character to character and time period to time period. It actually deals with the fall of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. You know, basically the Muslims invaded the capital of the Christian world, which at the time was the city of Constantinople, which was in Asia Minor, which is in today Turkey. Today, that city is called Istanbul. And during the time, Constantinople was the greatest, biggest wealthiest city in the world. It has walls that were 30 feet thick, and it was basically the successor to the Roman Empire. And then it moves through the ages. It goes into the Korean War a little bit. Then it goes forward in time to basically the 2020s, the time we're living in today. And then there's a future where the characters are living on a world ship, a generational ship that is trying to reach the nearest star system so they can continue the human race. So when you're bouncing around all these different characters and all these different settings, 
you start to wonder, well, what do all these things have to do with each other? How are they connected? And so I felt that that was detracting from how good I thought the book was. But as I started to realize how these stories were connected, that criticism really just went out the window. In the beginning, I thought it jumped around too much. I thought it lacked focus because you really spend very little time with each of the characters. The, the, the chapters are very short and there's a lot of information packed into each chapter. Instead of uh, showing you what's going on, he's just telling you what's going on. However, it's not always a bad thing to tell instead of show. And I think knowing the difference when it's best to tell, when it's best to show is kind of something that a master storyteller really knows how to do. And what I would recommend people do is if you really don't know the difference, then I think you should really just stick to showing and not telling. So this book deals with five characters. Omir is, I don't really want to say he's a, a Muslim guy because a lot of these early armies uh, and kings, what they would do is they would sweep through a territory and they would forcibly constrict people to join their forces. And so you really didn't have a say in whether or not you wanted to join the army or not. If the Sultan came by, he said, Hey, I need your men. I need your sons. I need your uh, food. I need your equipment. I need your cattle because Omir is a poor character that lives in a very small village with his mom and his dad. And he has these two very strong bulls that he uses to plow his field. And the Sultan says, hey, I like your bulls. They're very big and strong. And I'm going to need them to pull my giant cannon. Now, I don't know how historical this is. I do know that they had gunpowder. But the way they describe this cannon, it's enormous. It's like maybe the size of like a, I don't know, like a building. And I don't know if in real life they actually used a giant cannon to knock down the walls of Constantinople. I would imagine that they would need something like that because for decades, maybe centuries, Constantinople was considered the city that could not be conquered. I know that the Vikings on several occasions sailed down to Constantinople trying to conquer it. And instead of fighting the Vikings, they were so wealthy that they could just hire the Vikings instead, give the Vikings all this gold that they hoped to steal, and then say, okay, we want you to stay outside our walls and protect us from other invaders. Now, this isn't something that's in the book. This is just something I remember from history. And so Omir, who isn't really a bad person, and you can tell he's very sympathetic because he has a deep love for his animals. And a lot of his animals are forced to pull this cannon uh, along with hundreds of other cattle. And a lot of times they have to go uphill and through the rain and through the mud and the wheels of the cannons are breaking off and the cattle can't go anymore and they break their legs or they, they collapse with exhaustion. And then the cows are slaughtered for meat to feed the army every time a cattle can't take it anymore. And so it's really very tragic. And Omir is very sympathetic toward his animals. And so he's not this bloodthirsty guy that just wants to kill everybody in the city. Meanwhile, you cut to this girl named Anna, who is a 
seamstress. And I believe that she's an orphan. And so she has very little status in this society. And all of the orphans are basically have been gathered in this monastery. And every single day, they're just forced to embroider this very elaborate clothing for the bishops and the priests and the clergy. And I've actually seen some of this stuff that clergy used to wear in the early Roman days and in early Christendom. And it is amazing. It's actually mind-boggling when you see the level of detail in some of these garments. And they're like sewing like little tiny flowers and tiny birds and tiny scenes of nature all along the hem of this clothing. And so this is what they're being forced to do every single day to the point where they are losing their eyesight because they have to focus on these little needles all the time. And this is by no means a paradise, even though historically speaking, this was one of the great cities of the world. I think it would be compared to Rome or Athens or New York. But just like any other great city in history, a lot of it depends on your economic status. And so if you are an orphan in Constantinople, if you are very poor in the city, you're not going to have a very good life. And so Anna's life is terrible. Incidentally, my mother, who is Greek, will always tell me that Tuesday is a bad luck day. And I shouldn't do anything important on a Tuesday. I shouldn't get married on Tuesday. I shouldn't make any plans on Tuesday. I shouldn't have any parties. I shouldn't travel. I shouldn't get on a plane. Tuesdays are just bad, bad luck. And why are Tuesdays bad luck? Because that's the day the contents of Opal fell. And so I tried to tell my mom, I said, mom, that was 1,500 years ago. And just because that's the day that the city fell, we have to feel bad forever about Tuesday. And I'm like, what about all the other terrible things that have happened? What about you know Hiroshima and 9-11 and the sinking of the Titanic and Hindenburg and you know tsunamis and earthquakes and natural disasters that have happened all over the world throughout history probably have fallen on a different day throughout the week. So I tried to tell her this, but she just, no, 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 doesn't matter. Constantinople, that was like the worst thing that ever happened in history. So it was a very tragic event, a, a tremendous blow to Christianity. And it's really what allowed the Muslims to have a foothold into Europe eventually actually took over Greece. And the Ottoman Turks held Greece hostage for 400 years, which is the longest occupation in human history. Part of that was the fall of Constantinople. But of course, the book doesn't really get into this. It's really a personal story about Anna and Omir. Meanwhile, moving into the future, you have another two characters that intersect. One of them is Seymour. And Seymour starts off, he's a young kid. His mom is very poor. She works as a cleaning lady in a hotel. And he has perhaps some kind of autism because he is super sensitive to sounds. And so he has to wear earmuffs all the time. And he doesn't have any friends. And he's very antisocial. And the only thing that he really loves to do is to go out into the woods and he has this emotional bond with a large owl 
that lives in this tree next to his house. And he's devastated when the forest behind his house is all chopped down to make room for a new development. You know, they're developing condos and stuff like that. And what happens is his owl friend loses the home because they cut down the tree that the owl was living in. And he calls the owl trusty friend. And eventually he finds the owl's you know, bloody severed wing on a street somewhere. And it got hit by a car and its wing got ripped off. And this has a very traumatizing effect on Seymour. Meanwhile, you have another character born a few decades before Seymour. His name is Zeno Ninnis. And Zeno, he grows up around the 1940s and 50s. And he volunteers to go to the Korean War because his father died in an earlier war. So he goes to Korea where he is captured and he's also kind of a very antisocial character. And while he is a captive in a Korean concentration camp, he meets a guy from England who is a scholar of the classics. And he loves to translate old Greek texts and try to discover lost books by the Greeks and lost plays. And finally, you have the character of Constance, And this is the character that I was most invested in, maybe because she was living in a world ship and a generational ship where they're trying to get to another planet because it has been implied that due to global warming and pollution, that the earth has been completely devastated and the humans can't really live there anymore. And they need to go to another planet for the human species to survive. And this is a very closed ship, but they have everything they need. They have little synthesizers to print food and they have kind of this virtual reality thing where they can get into it and they can explore different environments. It's very similar to Google earth But if you can imagine Google Earth, but you're using a VR headset and you can even walk around because there's a little treadmill, a multi-directional treadmill that makes you feel like you're on Earth. And so you can kind of see what Earth used to look like before they left it, before it was destroyed. And this creates a lot of nostalgic feelings in the character of Constance and She is someone who just really wishes that she was back on Earth and she's not really that interested in the planet they're going to. So those are the characters. That's the setup. Okay, now you may be wondering, what the heck does any of this have to do with Cloud Cuckoo Land? Well, Cloud Cuckoo Land is a play written by a Greek playwright back in in ancient times. His name is Diogenes. Diogenes would be in, in Greek. He writes a story called Cloud Cuckoo Land about a character named Athon. And there's very little of this actual story in the book. You're really just getting fragments of chapters and scenes that talk about the adventures of Athon. What's interesting here is that the author, the real author, Anthony Doerr, he suggests that There are many of these Greek stories that are lost to history. 
And this is something that I've actually thought about a lot. Every time I go to Barnes & Noble, I see that there's a million books on the shelf, probably, probably more. There's probably millions of books in the world. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have modern technology. We have the printing press and we have, you know, computers and we have, you know, print on demand and Amazon KDP, which is just flooding the world with just crap. So it kind of forces me to wonder just how many stories existed in ancient times. How many plays did the Greeks write? We don't really know. We don't have a lot that survived, but it's quite possible that there are hundreds or thousands of books. We know that the Library of Alexandria supposedly had a million books in it or a million scrolls. Now, how big those books are, we, we don't really know. A lot of them survived because they were copied down by Muslims. We know that things like the Iliad and the Odyssey survived because they're very important. A lot of the Greek playwrights like Asclepius survived. But Anthony Doerr is suggesting that there is another story that has been lost to history, loosely based on some comedy fantasy stories that we do know exist. So it's kind of inspired by those, but it's something that the author has invented. And it's about a guy named Athan who goes to see a play about this place called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And even though the play is kind of satirizing this idea of a utopia, of this perfect fantasy world where nobody ever gets sick and nobody dies and everybody always has plenty to eat, basically kind of describing heaven. And Athan wants to go there. But he thinks that if it's in the sky, he needs to find a witch to turn him into a bird so he can fly up to the clouds to get to this place. But along his journey, he does find a witch that can turn him into an animal, but she tricks him. And instead of turning him into a bird, she turns him into a donkey. And so Athan goes on this very long journey where he suffers a lot and a lot of terrible things happen to him. And these chapters, they're really just like one page, like little stories telling you the play that Diogenes wrote interspersed throughout the novel. So you'll read a couple chapters about these different characters, and then you'll go back to Diogenes. And again, what does all this have to do with everything else? They, it really seems to be very scattered and very unrelated, but... Turns out that these stories are interrelated because all these characters at some point in time do intersect with this very old lost Greek play. And I think that the only way for me to really describe this is for me to get into spoiler territory. So if you found my review of this book so far intriguing, I really, really recommend you picking it up especially if you want to read some real masterfully written storytelling and beautiful writing. If you care about that stuff like I do, then I would highly recommend this book. When you see it as a whole, the way all the layers come together, it's a beautiful tapestry. So again, if you don't want to hear spoilers, I recommend you just stop listening now and go pick up the book because I, I think it's excellent. So... If we go back to Anna, even though she's an orphan, 
she's very curious and she's very smart and she wants to learn about books. And what she does is she escapes from the orphanage and she finds an old Greek teacher. And from him, she learns the story of Cloud Cuckoo Land. And this is a story that she kind of remembers and she writes it down from memory. And she tells her sister, her sister Maria gets in trouble. The teacher discovers that Anna has been reading, but he thinks it's Maria's book. And I guess women in of low status aren't really supposed to be reading. And so Maria gets punished. She's beaten in the head and she actually gets some brain damage and she loses her vision. And Anna really is heartbroken by this. And she just feels like she needs to somehow make it up to her sister. And there's a little side quest where she and another boy, they row out to a small island and she climbs up this tower on this island, which is this abandoned building, which used to be a library. And she kind of steals these very old books that the Christians are not very interested in because they're not that interested in replicating books that have nothing to do with Christianity. And this is something that I actually had a huge debate with on New Year's Day. I met one of my nephew's friends who is very knowledgeable, I have to say. And we had a very long, long debate up until like three in the morning. I was debating this guy about whether or not the early Christians valued literature or whether they destroyed literature. And I was on the side that early Christians really didn't care for literature that did not support the Bible. They were kind of like radical Christians today. They saw everything that could turn people away from the Bible as a threat, like Harry Potter. It was cancel culture of the medieval times. And he was saying, no, that's a misconception. Christians are actually way more open-minded than that. I don't think that's the case. And Anthony Doerr, really, the way he writes this book is he's basically saying that the Christians were no friends to literature and that they would not have appreciated the classics the way that modern scholars did later on. And so you have these Venetians, a group of scholars that are very interested in preserving old texts. Basically, they give Anna money every time she can find an old text to give them. And she uses this money for her sister who's going blind. But unfortunately, none of these cures work because most of them are just homeopathic remedies uh, mixed with a lot of prayer. One thing I will say is that there's kind of a curious absence of religion in this book. And if I had to maybe criticize something, even though it's briefly mentioned, the faith of the characters really isn't talked about. Like Anna really doesn't talk about God very much. She doesn't pray very much. It really doesn't talk too much about her belief in God. She seems very interested in the, the stories of the Greeks, but has zero interest in the stories from the Bible, which again, I don't really know why that would be because I think a lot of the early Bible stories are just as interesting and just as fanciful as the Greek stories. I almost feel like Anthony Doerr is taking this very, very secular approach to writing this. Perhaps he was afraid that he would alienate some religious people. Uh, maybe he didn't want to offend hardcore Christians or hardcore Muslims. Like 
even though Omir is comes from a Muslim part of the world, he never talks about his faith. He just talks about the Sultan. But you don't really know if Omir is a practicing Muslim or not. He doesn't read from the Quran. He doesn't pray five times a day. It's almost as if Omir doesn't have a religion. And I think that's a little unrealistic. I think if you were living in those times, you would be something. You would either be a Christian or you would be a Muslim. And I think regardless of your political views, regardless of how you felt about invading a city like Constantinople and kidnapping and raping the women inside and stealing the treasures from the churches, you are still going to have a some kind of religion. You're still going to have some kind of faith. And that faith is going to influence how you behave. And I feel like in this story, faith just does not affect the characters in any way. It doesn't motivate them or influence their behaviors in any way. These are purely secular protagonists. And then we have Seymour, who basically becomes an eco-terrorist. And he's very interested in the destruction of the environment due to global warming. So there's a lot of global warming talk in this book. And, you know, at first I felt that Seymour's story really wasn't that relevant, really up until the end when he's recruited by this terrorist cell that kind of encouraged him to carry out a bombing. And the bombing he wants to do is in a library. It's not that he wants to destroy the library, but there's a building next to it, kind of a development, urban development office. And I kind of sympathized with the character a lot. But of course, the book is not in any way pro-eco-terrorism. And I'm not pro-eco-terrorism, even though I sympathize, because I really don't feel like that's going to change anything. I, I feel like if you go around killing people who are against the environment, I think all we're really going to do is going to fuel sentiment opposing environmentalism, and then things are going to be even worse. So if, if I felt that killing one guy would save the world, then I would probably go kill that one guy. His heart's in the right place, and he really doesn't want to hurt anybody. He tries to blow up this building when he thinks no one is in the building. But when he goes in there, that's when he crosses paths with Zeno. And Zeno is the guy that he went to Korea, and he fell in love with this British scholar. And after the war, Zeno gets together with Rex, is his name, and Rex, he's trying to decipher Greek texts. They have used this computer imaging technology to x-ray these very old books from the Vatican Library. They're able to piece together this book where the pages have been fused together and the letters are inside. And Zeno takes it upon himself to translate this old book which has been lost. And he discovers or rediscovers the story of Cloud Cuckoo Land. And at the same time, there's a bunch of bored kids that are hanging out in the library and they want to do something. And the kids say, hey, let's do a play. You know, this is supposed to be a play. Let's, let's put on a play. On the same day that Seymour goes to blow it up. And this is how Seymour intersects with Zeno and comes across the Cloud Cuckoo Land book. Finally, we have Constance. 
She's my favorite character. And she is really fascinated with Earth. And there's a part in the book that I critiqued at first because I didn't know how the book was going to end. When the children reach a certain age, when they turn, I think, 12, they celebrate their birthday and then they tell them the big secret. And the big secret is that they will never reach their destination, right? They're basically told that you're in a generational ship. It's going to take you 500 years to get to this other planet. And we're not going to live that long. We're only going to live 80, 90 years if we're lucky. And this comes as a big shock to Constance because she really hoped to get somewhere. And I kind of felt that this was a flaw because I was like, well, why would they even bother telling the kids any of this? Oh, one day we're going to go to this beautiful world. And then you're going to tell them, oh, by the way, we're never going to get to this world. Wouldn't it be better if the kids are born and raised inside a spaceship? Then the spaceship is all they know. And so they're not going to feel bad about never leaving the spaceship if you tell them, this is life. This is all we really know. And if you want to tell them later on that someday, maybe in their 30s or 40s, you can tell them, hey, you know what? We're supposed to be getting to another planet. But as it turns out, it's not a flaw because things are not as they seem. And this is probably the biggest spoiler, the biggest surprise ending of the book. Inside the spaceship is an AI program called Sybil. And Sybil is basically Google, and she has recorded all of human history, every book and movie and song and everything ever, ever produced by human beings. I mean, they basically say Sybil knows everything. But as it turns out, Sybil does not know everything. She only knows what humans have really given her to know. And so if there's some ancient Greek text that's never been discovered, Sybil wouldn't know about it. And as it turns out, her father had a copy of the book Cloud Cuckoo Land. Constant asked her about the story, and she only asked her about it because she's able to go down into Google Earth and travel virtually to the house where her father grew up, and she sees through the window of her father's bedroom a copy of the book. And so she asked Sybil, hey, you know, what's this called Cuckoo Land? And Sybil doesn't know. So Constance kind of becomes obsessed with knowing about this because there is a virus that spreads throughout the ship, killing everybody on board. And everyone gets sick. First the children get sick, and then the teachers get sick, and then her mom gets sick, and then eventually her dad gets sick. And as a last-ditch effort to save her life, her dad puts her in an environmental suit and shoves her into this room where the AI mainframe is being housed. Of course, the question is, how does a virus come out of nowhere when they're in deep space, right? This doesn't make sense unless it kind of evolved on board the ship. But Sybil is monitoring everything, every life form and every organism on the ship. And so how a deadly virus could just develop from nowhere. So you have to wonder what the heck is going on. And again, this is another thing that I kind of felt maybe this is a flaw. It's a little bit implausible. 
I've always had a problem with stories like Interstellar, where the characters have to leave Earth and find another world, because, like Neil deGrasse Tyson has said, that there is nothing that we can do to Earth that will make Earth a worse place to live than another planet, right? So all these people are like, well, you know, if Earth goes bad, we can always go to Mars or we can always go to Venus. No, we can't. We could ignite every single nuclear bomb on Earth all at the same time. And we could pollute the hell out of the Earth and, and put all the CO2 we can imagine into the atmosphere. And still, the Earth is going to be way, way better for life than Mars or Venus or really any planet we're going to find. If there's another planet out there in the universe that is better for life than Earth, it would be like winning the lottery 10 times in a row. It would be astronomically difficult a thing to happen because we developed, we evolved over millions of years to be able to live on this planet. And so I always had a problem with generational ship stories like Interstellar, but I figure, you know what? Sometimes you got to give an author a free pass just so that he'll be able to tell a story. Well, as it turns out, even that small criticism really wasn't correct because when you get to the book, you discover things that satisfy my complaint. Okay, now before I get into the big reveal of the book, I would like to read to you some of the beautiful passages that appear in this book so you can get a sense of this author's writing. So this is basically Seymour talking about his life and the drudgery of his life. A splotch of cloud, a fragment of the Titanic smokestack, a section of a cowboy's bandana. Inside the terror creeps, that things will be like this forever, that this will be all there ever is, breakfast, work, supper, dishes, a half-completed jigsaw of the Hollywood sign on the dining table, its pieces on the floor, life, then the cold dark. And that is a fear that I've always had, that this is a meaningless existence. Here's another section that I loved. Of all the mad things we humans do, Rex once told him, there might be nothing more humbling or more noble than trying to translate the dead languages. We don't know how the old Greeks sounded when they spoke. We can scarcely map their words onto ours. From the very start, we're doomed to fail. But in the attempt, Rex said, in trying to drag something across the river from the murk of history into our time, into our language, that was, he said, the best kind of fool's errand. I felt this was very evocative because it really speaks to the human experience and how very limited our understanding of history is. When I was in graduate school for history, what we really discovered is that we really don't know much about the past. What we think we know are tiny, tiny fragments. It's as if we're trying to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but all we have is 200 pieces, maybe less. We are missing so many of the pieces that we really have to kind of guess and make assumptions about what life was like in ancient Greece. And even if we knew 
everything, we still really couldn't do it because the language and the customs and the traditions are so different. And this is something that you experience if you travel. If you go to a different country, you might watch all the YouTube videos you want about what it's like to live in Europe or to live in Asia. But until you actually have that experience, you really have no idea. And until you learn to speak a different language, you also don't fully realize how limited your mind is because there are words and expressions and ways of thinking and feeling that are so different and that really can't be translated. There's words that I know in Greek that I can express only in Greek and I can try to find a, a similar a synonym in English, but it's not really the same. And so I felt that this was a, a fascinating thing for the author to explore because it really talks about how meaningful and how significant literature is to the story of the human race and how much story matters, let's say. This is why I named my podcast Story Matters because I often feel that people rarely fully grasp how important story is. People think of story as just entertainment, as just something to distract yourself from everyday life. But story is so much more than that. It gives life meaning. And if we can continue the human story, humanity lives on through our stories. And this is something that the author recognizes. And at one point, Zeno is telling the kids, it's amazing that this story, this cloud cuckoo land had to survive so many natural disasters and raiders and wars and hurricanes and storms and fires and floods in order to reach us in the present. These stories really are the voices of the past. They're the voices of our ancestors. It's the dead speaking to us from the past, telling us we existed, we lived. And this is why story matters so much to me. And it's something I feel that Anthony Doerr is able to express in his work. The last passage is toward the end of the story. After Constantinople falls, Omir decides that he really doesn't want to be involved in the plundering of the city. He doesn't want to march in and kill people and rob the houses and take off with the women. So he decides to leave. But as he's escaping, he accidentally runs into Anna, who is also escaping the destruction of the city. And at first he takes her captive just because he doesn't want her to reveal his location, what he's doing. And then eventually he takes her with him back to his home in Eastern Europe, in his small village. And very slowly over time, they fall in love uh, because he treats her with a lot of gentleness. He never rapes her. He never really abuses her in any way. And this is how he tells that change. And I have to say, it's like that meme that says that escalated quickly. This escalates in the most mind-boggingly way. I mean, he goes from zero to light speed in one sentence, and yet this author makes it work. In time, she ceases to notice the defect in Omir's face, and that's because he has a cleft lip. It becomes part of the world, no different than the mud of spring, 
the mosquitoes of summer or the snows of winter. She gives birth to six sons and loses three, and Omir buries the lost sons in the clearing above the river where his grandfather and sisters are buried and marks each grave with a white stone he carries down from a high place known only to him. Basically, it goes from her accepting the defect in Omir's face to, boom, she's already given birth to his six kids. It's rapid fire. It's telling instead of showing. But the way he does it, it works for this story. So Seymour goes into the library to blow up the building next to it. And Zeno, who at this point, he's an 86-year-old man who's trying to translate the fragments of Cloud Cuckooland. He realizes that there is a terrorist in the building and he goes downstairs and to protect the children that are in the play, he grabs the bomb from the wall and he runs with it outside into the snow and the bomb blows up and he dies. Of course, Seymour is captured and he's put into prison. But here's the thing, because he is very, very good with computers, they give him a computer job while he's in prison. And he works for a big company that is very similar to Google. And this company is basically trying to map the earth. And as he is doing this, he slowly comes to realize that he did a very bad thing and he wants to atone for his sins, for his crime against this man. And he learns about this thing that the guy was trying to translate. And he takes all of the kids' books and he prints them using the resources from Google. And decades later, when the kids are adults, he invites them into a facility where they use the VR headset they're working on to simulate the story of Cloud Cuckoo Land, which again is about a man, Athan, who is looking for paradise and he has all these terrible experiences. He becomes a donkey where he is abused by his owners. And, and then later on, he escapes being a donkey and he's turned into a fish, but then the fish is swallowed by a giant whale. And then he's stuck in the whale's stomach for a, a while. And then eventually he's turned into a bird and he flies up into the stars and he eventually finds Cloud Cuckoo Land. It's only birds live there and a goddess. And But after a while, he's unsatisfied with being a bird, even though he has everything that he could ever want. And he starts to get homesick and he starts thinking about his life as a human. And he goes to the goddess and... The goddess, of course, knows he's a human. And she says to him that this feelings you have of never being satisfied, this is a human trait. This is not something that birds feel. And she says that if you really want to overcome this longing, you can read this book. And it's the book that contains the knowledge of everything. And when you read the whole book, when you get to the very end of the book, you're going to lose that, that desire, that human longing. And what he discovers is that on one page, people down on earth, they're living this wonderful life where they're having parties. And, and then on the next page, the same city, the same location suffers from war and drought and famine and destruction. 
I think what he discovers is that life goes in cycles, that there's happiness and sadness, there's life and there's death. And I think what he realizes is that you cannot have happiness without sadness and you cannot have life without death, that these things are mirrors of each other. This is uh, similar ideas that I expressed in The Princess of Anya, that you really cannot have one without the other. And so the character of Aethon decides that he's going to go back to Earth and live the life that he started out living as a human, even if it meant he would grow old and die. Now, I don't know how much I embrace that philosophy, but I do agree. It's definitely true that you cannot have joy without some level of suffering. I don't know how well that philosophy is really expressed through the other characters. I could also say that I don't feel that it was fully necessary to have all these characters in the book. Like Cloud Cuckoo Land would make perfect sense if you were to take away some of these characters, like I think you could remove Seymour's entire character arc from this book. I think you could probably remove the story of Omir and Anna, even though it's a great story, but I think you could completely remove both of those characters and Cloud Cuckoo Land would make perfect sense. The only connection between Cloud Cuckoo Land and Anna and Omir is that Anna was able to smuggle the story out of Constantinople before it was destroyed by the Muslims. And then Omir kept it in his village until he was an old man. And then before he died, he went to a monastery where they protect books. And then it went from there into the Vatican Library, where it was eventually discovered by Rex, who was Zeno's lover. And then... When Rex died, Zeno took over the attempting to translate the book. And then when Zeno died, it was digitized by Seymour, which eventually is how it ended up in the hands of Constance. Now, the big reveal of the book, and what I really think the story really centers on, is Constance and the future of humanity. Now, Constance loves this book because her father loved that book. And the big reveal is this. Constance is not on a spaceship. She's actually on Earth. And the way she discovers this, it's a little bit convoluted. Certain things clue her in. One of them is the fact that she wonders how a disease could have broken out on the spaceship. She also wonders why Sybil, the super advanced AI, is unable to discover the source of the disease. She also explores the the building of the spaceship. And what she finds is that the spaceship was built on the coast of this island next to Greenland, and that the people that volunteered to go on the ship were sedated. And then they just woke up in the spaceship. And the spaceship has no windows and no doors. And so nobody ever goes outside and you can never really see that there's space out there. I mean, I guess they could have simulated it with, you know, CGI or whatever, but there's no looking out the windows and there's no going out the doors. And there's a a character, a very minor character that's just briefly mentioned earlier in the book that supposedly goes insane 
after spending too much time in the Atlas and he tries to break out of the ship. And of course, everyone stops him trying to break a hole in the ship. There's going to be decompression and an explosion and everyone's going to be sucked out into space and everyone's going to freeze to death. Constance suspects that they're not going anywhere, that they're still on Earth. And so she escapes from the place where she's being quarantined. And this is after like a couple years of being stuck here. So I guess she feels like she's got nothing to lose because everyone on board is dead and she doesn't want to be alone on the ship anyway. She creates a makeshift axe and she breaks through the hull of the ship and she discovers that they're not in space. They're actually never left. They're on this island and they've been on this island this whole time. And what survived into the future? Cloud Cuckoo Land, because she copied it down by hand. That is really the story of humanity. It's a treasure that traveled through the century, through thousands of years, all the way back from ancient Greece to survive into the future. So I thought that was really, really fascinating. And this is really why I give this book my highest recommendation. Now, that's not to say that if you really look for flaws, you can't find them. There are a few things that I kind of wish maybe the book had. For example, you really don't know what happens to the Earth. I suppose that global warming has a devastating effect on the planet and destroys a lot of the natural environments. But if you know your science, you will know that global warming is not going to destroy the Earth. The Earth has been through five mass extinction events, many of which were much, much worse than anything that we're doing to the Earth right now. There was mass extinction events that wiped out 98% of all life on Earth. There was the meteorites that crashed in the Yucatan that wiped out the dinosaurs. And that was a mass extinction level event. We are currently living in the midst of the Anthropocene, which is the sixth mass extinction. And we might not seem that way because when you look outside your door, it doesn't look like Mad Max or The Last of Us or The Walking Dead, but this is a mass extinction event. And we measure that by the loss of natural habitats, by the rate of extinction of animal and plant species. But this is not the end of the world. This is going to be a world that is dramatically different than the world we know. We are going to suffer. Many of the world's major cities are going to flood and there's going to be mass home loss, mass joblessness. Millions of people are going to be displaced and those people are not going to have where to live. They're not going to find shelter. So I think there's going to be a lot of poverty. I think it's going to be a global depression. And, and that's really what we have to worry about. But eventually, I think life is going to spring back. And so I think what this author is implying is that just like the fall of Constantinople and just like the experiences of Cloud Cuckoo Land, we are in this perpetual state of destruction and rebirth. And I think that global warming is bad and we are going to suffer a lot, 
But eventually, we're going to recover and the human race is going to come back. I do kind of wish that I knew why they were put into spaceships that didn't go anywhere. I, I'm kind of wondering what was the purpose behind that that's never really explained. Just extrapolating from, from the text, my theory is that they wanted to preserve humanity and they realized that it would be a lot easier instead of trying to uh, send humans to another planet to terraform, which would be impossible for us to do at our current level of technology, then it would be a lot easier to just preserve humanity in little bunkers. And I think that's what that was. I think the spaceships were bunkers. And one thing that Constance discovers on the ship are lots and lots of seeds. And I think this might have been inspired by the Norwegian seed vault. There is this vault in Norway that is deep underground that basically has every seed and plant in the world in case we lose some species or there's some catastrophe, a meteorite strikes or something, we're going to be able to bring these plants back to life. So I think that's what the spaceship was supposed to be. And one thing that Constance does before leaving the ship is she grabs a bunch of seed bags and takes them outside. But how many of these ships were out there? I don't know. It does say that she finds a village, but what is the state of the earth at this time? We don't know. What is the state of the village at this time? We don't know. We know that she has children, so I guess things can't be that bad because she's able to give birth and, and raise kids. I think it's kind of like, probably like a Mad Max situation though, because her technology isn't very good and the children, you know, they don't have access to the internet and their entertainment involves Constance reading to them from Cloud Cuckoo Land, which again shows the power and the meaning of story and why story matters, because that is a way for the kids to find meaning and purpose in their lives. What really mattered here is that even with global warming, if you look at human history as a whole, you kind of see that things kind of go in cycles and that we should try to really live the best life we can now, try to enjoy what we have now, and that what really matters, perhaps maybe more than our individual lives, is preserving the human race. And the way we do that is by preserving art and, and literature. So I think that's it for my review of Cloud Cuckoo Land. If you are still listening to this and you still want to, uh, to read it, I highly recommend it. It is a masterpiece. I wrote here, it is a hauntingly beautiful tale, an intricate weave of interconnected plot threads that create a single epic tapestry. Okay, folks, that's pretty much all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I do have a bit of house cleaning to do. If you have been listening to my previous podcasts or looking at my blog, you may have noticed that I have come to a tremendous decision in life, a very difficult decision. What I've realized is that for the most part, indie books 
are not very good. They're just not. And again, this isn't to say that there are no good indie books. In fact, my next review is going to be about an indie book that I consider a good indie book. And of course, I like to think that my my books, which are also independently published, are good books. But the market is currently so tremendously saturated with independent publishing that there really is no way to stand out unless you are involved in a hyper niche. Like if you're writing specifically something that, you know, some kind of weird sex fantasy, then sure, you might end up selling a lot of books. Someone told me that what's really popular in uh, indie right now is harem fiction. And this is basically just fiction about a guy that, you know, ends up with lots and lots of women to sleep with. And this is just a, a fantasy that, you know, some people like reading about. And this isn't something you're going to find at Barnes & Noble. This is kind of like comparing a porno movie to an Oscar-winning film. I, I mean, these are not the same things. And really, I feel that the domain of independent publishing is the domain of poorly written fiction. And this is not something that I'm interested in doing. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to write like Anthony Doerr. And I'm trying to write something that is as masterful as Claude Cuckooland and, and other books that, that I regard as being great works of literature. And what I found is that other people that are in the independent publishing world, they're not really that interested in emulating the great writers. They, they seem to just be content with just writing whatever and leaving it at that. And so I really feel that the indie road is not where I belong. And so what I'm really going to do is I'm going to stop trying to push my books, selling my books online. And I'm going to just really try to focus on becoming the best author I can be, trying to measure up to, to authors like Anthony Doerr. I probably will never quite reach his level, but maybe I can get close, I'm hoping. And hopefully, you know, I, I believe that if you write a book like Cloud Cuckoo Land, I don't believe that a book like Cloud Cuckoo Land would just sit in a shelf somewhere. I don't believe that a book like this would be independently published. Books that are this well-written get published. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't want people buying my books online. I sincerely hope that you do because ultimately I write because I want people to enjoy what I do. I'm very, very grateful to all of my readers and all the people that review and share my work. I, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. But ultimately, I feel that I need to move on and I need to try to get to a better place. Uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land, by the way, was reviewed 147,000 times on Goodreads. Okay. That's not the kind of numbers you're going to get, even if you are writing dinosaur porn. The kind of books that get this many reviews are the books that are written like this. And, and this is what I want to do. So if you are interested in the Anya series, I recommend you go to nickalamonos.com. 
you can pick up Ages of Anya, The Princess of Anya, or The Feral Girl. And if you're listening to this podcast, you can get 25% off all the products by using promo code Story Matters. Just type in Story Matters before checkout and you'll get 25% off any book in my website. Uh, but again, the future of Anya and the future of my work is really going to be directed to agents and publishers. And I might actually have to use, go by a different name, a name that I'm not going to tell you what it is, a secret name, because I don't know whether or not even being an independently published author could be a stigma. I don't really know. So that's it. I've been Nick Calamonos. Thanks for listening.